I'm Dan Kurtzphalen, and this is the Foreign Affairs Interview. Ideology matters because it's the code language within which the regime speaks to itself. And it becomes, therefore, the headwaters, in my estimation, of being a reliable predictor of downstream policy change in the real world. Kevin Rudd is unique among China watchers. He's a fluent Mandarin speaker who was stationed in Beijing as a diplomat. He was also the Prime Minister of Australia and interacted with Chinese leaders at the highest level. Kevin is worried about the course of the US-China relationship, but he does not buy that conflict is inevitable. The two superpowers can't avoid a strategic rivalry, but as Kevin has written in Foreign Affairs, they can, with the right approach by both sides, avoid disaster. Kevin, thanks for joining us. Great to be with you. So we're having this conversation at a fairly fraught, intense moment in the U.S.-China relationship. Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi was in Taiwan just a few days ago. We're seeing Beijing's response play out now with, say, an unprecedentedly aggressive military exercises and missile tests around Taiwan, as well as by suspending a number of the structures for U.S.-China dialogue and diplomacy that have helped keep the relationship on track historically. You wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs last month called Rivals Within Reason, and you had a metaphor in that piece that I think vividly captured the dangers of this dynamic. So let me quote you before we get into this conversation. You wrote, quote, watching China and the United States engage in increasing levels of brinkmanship is like watching two neighbors welding away in a backyard workshop without rubber-soled shoes on, sparks flying everywhere and exposed, uninsulated cables running across a wet concrete floor. What could possibly go wrong? And that was, again, before Pelosi's Taiwan visit. But what's remarkable about this moment in some ways is that this has felt so long in coming. I think we've all been in some ways waiting for a crisis for some time. So I want to start by looking backward to how we got here and whether, to borrow a term from the title of your new book, The Avoidable War, whether this outcome was in fact avoidable or not. When you look at where we are and look back at mistakes that have been made over the past couple of decades, what could we have done differently? It's important to put recent developments, including those over Taiwan, into a recent historical context. If you take a realist view of the world, which by and large, at least Monday to Friday, maybe not on weekends is what I do, when the uh, balance of power changes and China both objectively and subjectively concludes that things are moving in its direction in terms of the hardware that they have, the military technologies they can apply, as well as the economies they lead, then it brings about changes in behavior. That's one factor. The second is, without getting too bogged down in the theory of all this, is the agency of Chinese leadership, as opposed to, if you like, the real structure of their relationship, that is the United States and China. And the agency of Xi's leadership is kind of out there. Fellow Sinologists and I have always described him as a leader always prepared to take calculated on balance risks unlike his most recent predecessors, back to Mao, who was also predisposed to take calculated on balance risks, not crazy, not carefree, as it were, but nonetheless, not an eternally passive position. And that's certainly Xi Jinping. And then the final factor at play underneath all of this is the beginnings of the American reaction to A and B above, which we can trace back, I think, to the national security strategy of H.R. McMaster at the end of 2017, and the reconceptualization from the U.S. perspective of this as a relationship now dominated by strategic competition, no longer engagement. 
So the reason I say all that, Dan, is simply to say within those factors, they tend to define or limit what individual leaders can do. So my argument, and therefore my criticism of, say, Speaker Pelosi's visit, is that if you're seeking to manage this strategic competition effectively, then one of the things you don't fool around with are these symbols of the One China policy. Because the symbols of the One China policy are easily, as it were, capable, if they're played the wrong way, of inducing this unbalanced calculated risk approach that we've seen from Xi Jinping. That, I think, is at least, if this was a game of strategic tennis, is a 15-love advantage to the Chinese. That's the one thing I would undo in the most recent spread of events. Many of us observing these events in the West focus a lot on Xi Jinping and his particular role, the ways in which he's different from recent Chinese leadership. He's, of course, going on a decade in power and in the party Congress this fall, will be looking to uh, cement his rule for at least five more years. You are relatively unique among serious students of China in that you've been in the room with Xi Jinping. You've been in private conversations with a slew of other Chinese leaders How is she different from the other Chinese leaders you've dealt with? What is it like to be in a room with them? Yeah, I've been fortunate enough in varying capacities, way back from the time I was a junior woodchuck in the Australian embassy in Beijing back in the Mesolithic period, to have been around when Deng Xiaoping was leader. I certainly met uh, Zhao Ziyang and Hu Yaobang, and then, of course, Jiang Zemin and then Hu Jintao much more extensively as I worked my way slowly up the Australian political food chain of life. So this leader struck me as different in observing him because he exhibits an individual strength of purpose and sense of direction for the country, which I did not see in uh, Hu Jintao or Jiang Zemin, although I did see it as a young diplomat in the mission statement and the leadership style, if you like, of Deng Xiaoping. Deng Xiaoping had a very clear view and was reflected when you observed him as a leader, which is, we're on about economic development. All this other stuff can come second, third, fourth, and fifth. Yeah, we'll hold on to the Leninist regime. Look what I've just done in Tiananmen. But other than that, we're just going to develop this country's economy until it becomes really powerful, and then we'll work it out what we should do next. And by and large, his successes all work within that frame. Xi Jinping says, nah, my view is that this country is already pretty powerful. My view is we're sick and tired of being pushed around. And then when you observe his language, while he's not aggressive in his language interpersonally, or even necessarily assertive in his language interpersonally, there is a certain steely resolve to take China in quite a different direction. So that's my observation in context, plus a very simple, obvious point is that the only other Chinese leader I've ever met who never used notes was Deng. In other words, you could speak in the tradition of the Bourget Pope's ex-cathedra with definitive statements falling from the lips, at which point they would become doctrine and law. And that's why subsequent Chinese leaders after Deng were so careful with their notes to stick to the line, and not Xi Jinping. That's what struck me most when I spent a long time with him when I was Prime Minister of Australia, when it was, for him, as my observation, all extemporary, because I was not asking conventional questions, because I'm by training and instinct an historian of modern China. So he would sit there without notes and be able to have a long, substantive conversation with you without the kind of guidance that you'd seen from his predecessors? I found very much that this was a man comfortable in his own skin, knew what he believed 
knew what he was about to say, said it without any apology, and that was as vice president before he'd just become on the cusp of becoming president. And then when I subsequently dealt with him, after he had got the number one job, nothing changed. If anything, this predisposition was strengthened. One thing that you stress that I think many other observers don't spend a lot of time on is the role of ideology in shaping his approach to the world. And this will be a subject of a forthcoming piece in foreign affairs. But I want to linger on this because you've made the point that understanding his ideology and the party's ideology is really essential to understanding what they're up to. So how would you describe that ideology and why do you think it's so central to understanding the way Chinese strategy unfolds? Ideology was not an historical emphasis of mine, primarily because in my lived experience of China, which is really since the death of Mao, I began studying Chinese the year that Mao died. That kind of dates me. Therefore, I frankly grew up under the Deng Xiaoping world whose organizing principle was practiced as the only criterion for truth, or more specifically, Deng's grade three character phrase was, which is, let's stop talking about theory. Okay. <laughs> so in his wonderful Sichuanese style, Deng Xiaoping said, we've done this for the last 20 years, 1956, 1976, look where that got us. So let's just get on to the business of unleashing the productive forces in the economy. So if you grew up in that environment as a young sinologist, you tend to assume that ideology had been relegated, and it had been. But secondly, having come back to the study of Xi Jinping since I've left prime ministerial office, I've now, through a research program I've done at Oxford, I had to read my way through the ideological texts of the Xi Jinping era, but frankly also the period of Jiang Zemin and Hu Jintao as well. Back to Deng himself. Two things stand out, Dan. Number one is that even Deng Xiaoping back in 1981-82 had to use ideology, Marxism-Leninism, to justify the change in course for the Chinese party and state in favour of economic development and relegating the centrality of class struggle or other forms of struggle. And interestingly, uh, Deng Xiaoping did this in two ways. He and his advisors came up with this marvellous creative notion within Marxism-Leninism called, quote, the primary stage of socialism, unquote. Good thing about the primary stage of socialism is that the factors of production are relatively undeveloped, which means that you've got to develop those factors of production as quickly as possible and place relatively less priority on, quote, the relations of production. That means class in a Marxist worldview until you've got those factors of production up there. So what Deng Xiaoping said was Mao Zedong's great error was to continue to emphasise the relations of production over the factors of production. He mistakenly assumed that we'd already reached a higher stage of socialism, second error. In fact, we were at a primary stage of socialism, as the Chinese phrase. And as a consequence, our central revolutionary requirement is to develop these factors of production. And so this was engineered ideologically in 81, 82. And if you look at the party documents approved at the party congress, the 12th party congress back in 1982, it was this seminal ideological event, which then de-ideologized these subsequent 35 years. Roll the clock along in the wonderful world of ideology. And we get to the 19th party congress held every five years, which this time is held in 2017. And then you read this stuff carefully and then a big change appears to you. 
and that is Xi Jinping in defining the primary stage of socialism doesn't take Deng Xiaoping head on at this stage and say he was wrong about emphasising the factors of production, but he says that within this historical phase of the party, we must conclude that the primary contradiction which the Chinese Communist Party is dealing with ideologically is between developing the factors of production on the one hand and dealing with, quote, the imbalanced forms of development which have arisen. That's code language for inequality, class inequality, and frankly, other externalities not addressed by this wholesale, unrelenting development. So this was an ideological, as it were, exocet directed at the core of the Deng Xiaoping enterprise of 1982, except very few of us kind of emphasised at the time. I kind of stumbled across it about a year later and realised its full ideological significance. So that, I think, is the big differentiating point. And ideology matters because it's the code language within which the regime speaks to itself. And it becomes, therefore, the headwaters, in my estimation, of being a reliable predictor of downstream policy change in the real world. So you, in analyzing both the ideology and ambitions of Xi Jinping, but the way that's intersected with the U.S. reaction and the reaction from the United States Asian partners and allies as bringing us into what you call the decade of living dangerously, that we're going to be in a kind of stretch of history when both sides see a kind of decisive moment in this contest, and that will make it particularly dangerous. So describe the dynamics that you see starting to unfold now and explain why you see those as so treacherous. I think it's important to map together the world of ideology as it's unfolding in Xi Jinping's, as it were, conceptual universe and therefore the conceptual universe of the Chinese Communist Party, on the one hand, with what we would most of us agree is happening in the real world. Because when these two sets of forces intersect, it's not just like phosphorus on water, that's it's basically bouncing around everywhere, it becomes quite explosive. So a few words on where ideology takes Xi Jinping applied not just to the internal domain, but the external domain. I should have said an answer to the earlier question that in characterising Xi Jinping's ideological change, I describe it as Marxist nationalism, or more accurately, Marxist-Leninist nationalism, by which I mean the ideological changes are, within the framework I sought to describe earlier in our discussion, is to move the centre of gravity of Chinese politics to the left, that is the Leninist shift in Xi Jinping's ideology, to move the centre of gravity of the Chinese economic policy world to the left. That's the Marxist piece in his overall ideological worldview. But importantly, offset by a parallel move to the right in Chinese nationalism as an underpinning force animating the direction of Chinese foreign and security policy. So if you like, the domestic political economy to the left, Chinese nationalism to the right, I characterise his own overall ideological enterprise as one of Marxist nationalism, which for students of intellectual history seems inherently contradictory, because if you're a Marxist, you're supposed to be an internationalist rather than a nationalist, except that's never bothered the Chinese. Call it um, socialism with Chinese characteristics with a new Xi Jinping touch. But that's the overall worldview. Secondly, when I spoke before about changing, quote, contradictions within the analytical framework of the Chinese Communist Party, they look at two analytical tools. One's dialectical materialism and one is historical materialism. In other words, what phase are we up to in history? 
And one of the principal, as it were, reactive agents against the Chinese revolution within this current historical phase. And so what Xi Jinping is concluding is that not only is there a phase of struggle now to be engaged in domestically to reset the balance, both on the economy and politics, that's the Marxist-Leninist piece, but also externally there are forces of reaction against this rising Chinese revolution as it seeks to find its proper place in world history. And that is the United States. And therefore, I increasingly see in the Chinese ideological literature a depiction of a sense of struggle, the Chinese term is doujong, both domestically and internationally, both on the home front against these forces of reaction, though that term is not yet used, pushing back against Xi Jinping's new line on politics and the economy, but also struggle against the United States and its allies internationally, because in Xi Jinping's domestic narratives, what he's doing is seeking to push this new Chinese vision and strategic reality into the world as a new force in world history. But those international forces of reaction led by the United States are pushing hard in the reverse direction, hence struggle. And what's left unclear in the lexicon ideologically, domestically, is whether this is supposed to be violent or non-violent struggle. And that, I think, is possibly where the next ideological development will unfold within the internal literature of the Chinese Communist Party. Just to conclude then, where all that intersects with the real world is, Xi Jinping looks at the US-China trade war, which he sees as primary evidence that the United States is not just engaged in classic, as it were, containment, but more broadly satisfies his theoretical script that this, in fact, is a massive reaction by the United States against China's rising power within the ideological frame he has set. Trump reaction to the pandemic in terms of supply chain interruption and in terms of what's called the technology offensive against China bleeding out into the Biden administration, seen as a further evidence point. The new coherence under Biden of alliance structures in Asia and Europe is seen again within this ideological construct of the forces of international reaction against China's rise and the extension of China's influence in world history being struggled by this reactionary force. And then that brings us to the presence where, and quite apart from all that, ideologically, how do they see Taiwan? Is the United States trying to permanently weaken China by ensuring that China remains permanently divided? ipso facto, a much more potent version of human rights complaints about Xinjiang, a military campaign to keep China weak by ensuring it remains divided. That's why it's kind of dangerous right now. When Xi Jinping and those around him look at the state of American power and the state of American alliances, do they see them as in terminal decline? Do they see a kind of moment of opportunity? How do they assess their adversary at the moment? Again, I trace the ideological language on this stuff because it's the way in which the regime speaks to itself. And even though it's conducted in opaque language, which doesn't lend itself to headline in the New York Post, it's more complex than that. But the language has two parts to it. One of it is increasingly what I describe as national self-confidence language, which basically says that according to Chinese comprehensive national power, its assessment of China's strength against the United States, it is becoming greater and greater and is becoming irresistible. The other language they use is that the world is now seeing changes not seen in 100 years. By the way, that was first used on the 100th anniversary of the Bolshevik Revolution in 1917. 
In other words, this is a new force in the history of global socialism as well. And we are therefore living in fundamentally epochal times of history and times of epochal change. And then the other one they use most recently is with greater and greater intensity is that China has now moved to the center stage of global affairs. Historically, this wasn't used, but China has now become a central actor. If you like, all three sets of those formulations are the language of national self-confidence. But militating against that is the second set of language, which is the unfolding nature of the American-led, as it were, reaction, which requires China to continue to assess the turbulent strategic environment in which it is now operating, carefully recalibrating its strategy, ensuring that no strategic errors are made. That's the countervailing force, which is one of caution. But here's the really interesting thing, I think, which emerges up the midst of these two sets of trends, and that is for 20 years, the Chinese have used in their five yearly congresses of the Chinese Communist Party the term, a period of strategic opportunity. The term is and what that has basically meant going right back to 2001-2, prior to Xi Jinping, although about the time when he was starting to emerge as a central political figure, is a view that no major wars are imminent. Furthermore, it enables us to make hay while the sun shines, grow our economy and become a more powerful nation with minimal resistance abroad. If I'm making a prediction for the 20th Party Congress coming up in October, November, I would not be at all surprised if this formal phrase disappears from the lexicon and we find a new phrase inserted, which is along the lines of China now finds itself in a period of aggravated strategic contradiction. Now, that of itself will be, in my judgment, dangerous if I'm right, and I may be wrong in the prediction, but if it's something similar to that, what it's saying to the rest of the entire ideological machinery is that we're looking at a period where historical assumptions about a benign external environment have gone forever. And we are now in a period of aggravated and accelerated contradiction conflict and struggle. And that's the language which would worry me in terms of becoming the first real predictor ideologically of an emerging period of armed conflict. I want to get to what that period might look like and how we might avoid catastrophe. But first, I want to linger on Ukraine and how China's seen the US and European and allied reaction to Ukraine. Has that given them pause when it comes to things that they might do vis-a-vis Taiwan or otherwise? Is there anything about their continued support of Putin that surprises you? What what do you make of the Chinese response to Ukraine so far? When they look at Ukraine, they're looking at how does the overall constellation of international forces now work within the framework of comprehensive national power? And they will be disturbed by that. Disturbed in one particular sense is that like the rest of us, we and they were surprised by the degree of international, but in particular European solidarity around Ukraine. Now, when you strip away foreign policy floss from strategic policy substance, the Chinese are still, in essence, concerned about the decision by Europeans who they regarded as strategically soft to be both a corridor for and a provider of some military re-equipment and resupply of Ukraine in its period of crisis. Similarly, with the strength and depth of the financial and economic sanctions against the Russian Federation, and similarly, even the votes in the UN General Assembly, where it had thought it corralled comfortably most of the G77, that's the developing country world, in the 
United Nations to basically either abstain or even vote against condemnatory resolutions against the Russian military action in Ukraine. So the Chinese looked at all that, not in a way which said, oh, my God, we've got to defer our preferred timetable for taking on Taiwan, but as saying, this is more complex than we thought, and we're going to have to really double down on our diplomacy with the Europeans in particular as a huge market for Chinese goods, as a significant source of capital for the Chinese economy, and as a significant, as it were, collaborating force in global politics in order to rectify the damage which has been done. But that's prior to the Pelosi visit. Now, my judgment in its early days yet, of course, as we have this discussion, it's only less than a week since the conclusion of the Pelosi visit. The net calculus, I believe, in Beijing about the impact of the Pelosi visit will be in multiple dimensions. But on the global politics dimension of it, they will see that because in Europe and around the world, there will be a conclusion that the United States, some of its closest allies, and the Taiwanese themselves have been messing around with a relatively innocuous one-China formula, which has underpinned strategic stability with China for half a century. That this, therefore, means that the beginnings of the development of an international constituency of support for Taiwan, which began with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, will now be dissipated, and they will see this as a strategic error by the United States and its closest allies. And I think there may be some truth in that conclusion. We'll be back after a short break. Our oceans are home to most of the life on Earth. But today, plastic pollution is killing them. 33 billion pounds of plastic enter the oceans every year. That's roughly equivalent to dumping two garbage trucks full of plastic into the oceans every minute. But you can help. Oceana campaigns to stop plastic pollution at the source by calling on companies to reduce their plastic waste and offer plastic-free and reusable alternatives. Take action today by joining Oceana at oceana.org join. In the set of pieces you've done for foreign affairs over the last couple of years in, in your recent book, you have focused on the need to develop what you call managed strategic competition. The The premise here is that we're entering a period of competition and tensions. There's no solution to that. There's no way to avoid that period. So the best we can hope for is putting some guardrails around that competition and hoping that we are able to avoid catastrophe, as you've put it in some of your pieces. You wrote somewhat hopefully in a recent piece that Beijing and Washington, I'm quoting you here, may be groping toward a new set of stabilizing arrangements that could limit, though not eliminate, the risk of sudden escalation. After the Pelosi visit, are we going the wrong direction, or do you still see hopeful signs that we are moving towards something like managed strategic competition? Yeah, you're right, Dan, to characterize managed strategic competition, let's call it MSC for the purpose of this part of our chat, in the way in which you have. It's about strategic guardrails on the stuff which could most readily blow up. Taiwan, South China Sea, East China Sea, Korean Peninsula, cyber and space, because there's stuff happening in each of those domains every day, which is highly, what's the word, fissile, for want of a better term. Go back to our two guys working in the backyard garage analogy. These are the five sets of things which produce the most sparks on a given day. And so that's why I'm all for spark reduction. That's what I'm about, because it just reduces the probability of crisis escalation, conflict and war by accident. Secondly, within the Taiwan box of those five boxes, I say in the book 
that one of the strategic guardrails which the United States would need to, as it were, offer the Chinese side is to be infinitely more religious and adherence to the one China policy in both its high theology and in its, shall I say, operational execution as well. And that's my way of saying you can do a whole bunch of stuff with the Taiwanese without violating this cardinal symbolic stuff like Pelosi visit. So you're right to say that when I wrote this most recent piece of foreign affairs rivals within reason, I was becoming in our generally pessimistic age, borderline small o optimistic, because I was forming a view that neither side were of a mind to run an ever increasing risk of crisis, escalation, conflict and war, at least through the rest of this decade, for the simple reason that neither side was not ready for it. And therefore, we need a practical stabilizing mechanisms in order to reduce the risk of it. In March, as the Madam Speaker, thank you very much, Nancy. And frankly, that has, I won't say put a dampener on it. It's done a whole lot more than that. It's kind of brought in an extra oxycetylene tool into the workshop to give us some more sparks, just in case we didn't think there were enough flying around in the first place. But your core question is, is it irredeemable? No. There are still realists on both sides of this relationship. And I think in the midst of, frankly, the uh, diplomatic and political mess, which emanates from the Pelosi visit, which will be, in my view, a net strategic loss for the United States and its allies and a net strategic gain for the Chinese. The bottom line is neither side still has an appetite for crisis, conflict and war by accident. We will not see any in my view, clear light or clear space open up on this until well beyond the party congress in October, November. Once Xi Jinping is back, confirmed for his third term, record third term in office, despite the fact he has a weakening economy to contend with on the domestic front. And maybe because of that, there may emerge future opportunities to look at this sort of formula again. Perhaps both sides looking back on what has just happened are saying, That got a bit close, and I'm not sure we want to be there again in the near-term future. However, if the consequence of Pelosi is you've got a posse of Republicans now saddling up to travel to Taiwan and deliver their main campaign speeches from downtown Taipei, in the competitive stakes now set by Nancy in terms of who's got to say what to look the most hairy-chested on Taiwan, then we enter into a whole new world of pain. Beyond Taiwan, as you talk to American policymakers, Australian policymakers, policymakers in other allied capitals, if they wanted to move toward a managed strategic competition or an MSC approach, what are the other steps that could be taken right now to start to put some of those guardrails in place? I think number one is create, as it were, strategic and diplomatic and political space. And that doesn't mean going weak. It just means de-escalating the megaphone. In the China's case, frankly, ceasing and desisting from an increasingly aggressive pattern of military exercises around the island, having, quote, made your point, unquote. And then thirdly, finding that space or opportunity around about the side conversation at the upcoming G20 summit between Xi Jinping and Biden. And that'll be in November. I just want to make sure we get the timeline right. That'll be in November after the party Congress. So Xi Jinping will be in a somewhat more assured position. Yeah, he'll emerge reappointed. So my judgment is that if you can de-escalate the language between now and November, my judgment is that the Chinese choose, and I would urge them to do this, de-escalate their military activity around the island between now and then, 
And then thirdly, a conversation be engaged in around the margins of the G20 summit, which will be the first time Xi Jinping and Biden have met physically since Biden's become president. That, that may provide the circuit breaker opportunity to commence a discussion about what each of these five boxes might look like in reality, or at least a discussion about how to reconstitute the de minima military lines of communication necessary to keep incidents from being misinterpreted or unnecessarily accelerated. And I think one of the core operational negative consequences of the Pelosi visit is the unilateral cancellation by the Chinese of these four mill-to-mill channels. You, in the piece you wrote for Foreign Affairs last year called Short of War, focus a lot on the need to put guardrails in place in the short and medium term. But there's a, a really fascinating conclusion to that piece, which is that the point of putting guardrails in place is so that over the long term, we can really let the two systems compete. Both the West and the Chinese have a view that their system is likely to do a better job of delivering prosperity and security and everything else to citizens in their own countries and elsewhere. As you look at the strength of the two systems, the vitality of the two systems, how do you see that playing out? There's, I think, a degree of pessimism in the US, at least about the state of our democracy, but also plenty of reasons to see trends going in the wrong direction within China. So as you assess the two systems, how do you see them? Look, you know, I'm from Australia, which last time I looked was probably the United States' oldest continuing treaty ally. So we've been around for a while. And so I don't think it'd be a great surprise to my Chinese communist friends for me to say to them, I'm a freedom guy. And I think team freedom's got a lot going for it because there's something quite irrepressible about both the ideological or ideational message of freedom, which frankly has spooked our communist friends right from the get-go. The notion of freedom as economic freedom, personal freedom, political freedom, is more deeply understood as a threatening concept within the realms of Marxism-Leninism than we in the West assume. So that's my first core point. Secondly, they think organisationally we're utterly shambolic and that you know we couldn't cut our way out of the paper bag with a pair of scissors because we're such divided democracies regularly turning over political leaders. And as a consequence, the great political virtue of Western liberal democracy, which is the political automatic stabilisers we have in our system, otherwise called elections, leaving January 6th to one side, is that we peacefully turn over one political administration to another. But the flip side to that is, if that occurs, then the opportunity and the reality of policy and strategic continuity across multiple administrations or multiple democracies is limited. Therefore, from the Chinese perspective, the US and its Western allies ultimately lose. What I would say if I was making a big sort of long shot call about the long term future is that the third dynamic crawling up the middle of all this, of course, is the economy and technology. And the capacity of the United States and free economies to continue to reinvent itself economically and technologically, and the brilliant stuff being done every day of the week in Silicon Valley. If that race continues to be yielded in the direction of team freedom against team control, while bearing in mind what Eric Schmidt and Henry Kissinger and others have reminded of us recently, which is the advances across 10 critical technology categories through China's industrial policy approach, then I think that could well become the decisive factor in this overall strategic equation. So what's my instinct? Freedom's a compelling force. But as we know from recent challenges to freedom in world history, organisation and sustainment 
are equally critical, and both have been essential to the American century. And if there's to be a second American century, both are critical to that one as well. Kevin, we will continue looking to you to make sense of these dynamics in our pages. But in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us today. Great to be with you, Dan. Thank you for listening. You can find the articles that we discussed on today's show at foreignaffairs.com. The Foreign Affairs interview is produced by Kate Brannon, Julia Fleming Dresser, and Marcus Zacharia. Special thanks also to Grace Finlayson, Caitlin Joseph, Nora Revenaugh, Asher Ross, and Gabrielle Sierra. Our theme music was written and performed by Robin Hilton. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you like what you heard, please take a minute to rate and review it. We release a new show every other Thursday. Thanks for listening.